As I mentioned in the introduction to the Torah reading, Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, has two main subject matters. The korbanot, the offerings that were presented to God, and the topic of tahara, of ritual purity. The Eitzchaim commentary notes that 50% of all of the mitzvot that Maimonides counts within the Torah, 50% of the 613 mitzvot are found in Sefer Vayikra. Uh, that's an interesting piece of data to understand. What it also means is that when people talk about, oi, 613 mitzvot, how am I ever going to possibly be able to observe 613 mitzvot? Right away, you should know in our day and time, post Beit Mikdash, in a time in which the temple does not exist, you can't do at least half of them because they have to do with korbanot and tahara and centers of the sacrificial cult that took place in Jerusalem. 50% in Sefer Vayikra. Our Parsha, Parsha Vayikra, which introduces the whole Sefer, introduces also the five major types of korbanot, the five major types of offerings that were presented. There's the olah, or the burnt offering, which was brought for various occasions of recognition, of mindfulness of the Israelites. The mincha offering, which is a grain offering, gifts that were given to God, understood to be part of the duty that B'nai Yisrael had, that a person had to bring gifts of recognition to God in gratitude for all that God has done. The most common form of korban, of sacrifice, is the zevach shlemim, is the, the offering of well-being. Uh, shlemim coming from shalom, well-being. There's the chatat offering, the sin offering, which is offered when a person inadvertently makes a mistake. You do something bishkaga, you do something by accident or without realizing it, and then when you become aware that you've transgressed one of the commandments, then you bring a korban chatat, you bring a sin offering in order to make amends. And then there's the asham offering, the guilt offering, which is the opposite of the chatat. Not in the sense of you bring an offering when you do something bemezid, when you do something intentionally. But if there was a mitzvah that you should have performed, but refrained from performing, that is when you bring the asham, the guilt offering. So those are the five major types of korbanot, of sacrifices that we encounter in Vayikra. The Ola, the Mincha, the Zevach Shlamim, the Chatat, and the Asham. Now, when it comes to the Chatat, to the sin offering, a close reading of the Torah text leads us to an important idea that can only be discerned through nuance. Nefesh ki techta bishkaga mikom mitzvot Adonai, asher lote asena, ve asa me'achat mehena. When a person unwittingly incurs guilt in regard to any of God's commandments about things not to be done and does not do one of them. That's the introduction to the chatat offering, to the way 
um, in which we learn about the chatat. And then what the Torah does, it outlines each case, each case in which a person might be liable for a chatat offering, for the sin offering, in the following ways. Ima kohen, if the kohen does something inadvertently, v'im kol adat Yisrael, and if any person from the community of Israel, if any individual were to inadvertently do something that would require a chatat, v'im, uh, I'm sorry, v'im kol adat Yisrael refers to the community inadvertently doing something wrong, v'im nefesh achatan, if a person within the community individually would do something wrong, v'im keves yavi korbano, and if uh, one is to bring a chatat offering, they should bring a sheep from their flock. Um, each of those circumstances begins with the same word, im, if. Remember, the purpose of the chatat offering, the purpose of the sin offering, is for those sins that are incurred bishgaga, by accident, inadvertently. So im makes sense. If a person were to do something, if the Kohen were to do something, if, 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 im, 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 im. That makes sense. There's one case, one case as it refers to the chatat offering where the introduction, the language, the word is different. And that's the case of the nasi, of the political leader. The political leader of the political leader, the Torah says, Asher nasi v'chatat v'asa achat mikol mitzvot Adonai Elohav, Asher lo te'asena bishgaga v'ashem. Asher nasi. When we talk about the sin of the political leader, the Torah says, Asher, when that person will sin, and not im, if that person will sin. Notice the difference. The Torah assumes that the political leader will err, will sin. In fact, by using the word asher when the nasi sins, the Torah assumes a probability of error on the part of political leadership. Now, why is that? Well, we're not the first to ask that question. Rabbi Bachya ben Asher he expresses a certainty that the leader will sin because he becomes extremely haughty and arrogant, which is the cause of sin. Already, our ancestors, the commentators, understood that power corrupts, that when you're in a position of political leadership, power corrupts. There's a sense of, I'm the leader. I know better than everyone else. There's a haughtiness, an arrogance that is likely to occur amongst political leaders that will lead and be ultimately be the cause of sin. The Torah even assumes this. Tanakh assumes this and insists that when B'nai Yisrael wanted to appoint a king over them, Remember, it was B'nai Yisrael who wanted a king so that they could be like every other nation around them and have a king. And the, and the prophets uh, 
Shmuel, Samuel says, no, you, know, you shouldn't do that. Finally, God acquiesces and appoints a king. But the Torah is quite explicit that the king must write his own Sefer Torah and keep that Sefer Torah by his side at all times as if to warn the king about the dangers of leadership, of political leadership. The Torah itself in Deuteronomy says, Do not act haughtily towards others and deviate from the mitzvot, from God's commandments. And so the king has to write a Torah and keep it by his side so that he can constantly be reminded of those commandments and not deviate from them. Others have suggested that political leaders are not concerned necessarily with religious matters, with matters of purity, of holiness. Their concern is more on the practical matters and that they rely on popular support, which of course feeds back into that sense of haughtiness and ego. Rabbi Shai Held writes that Many commentators argue that the leader does not sin despite his position, but precisely because of his position. And Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, brings another dimension to, to the discussion when he says that politics is inherently an, an arena of conflict. Wealth and power are zero-sum games. And so that arena ultimately will lead political leaders to difficult judgments. They must balance competing claims and will sometimes, in fact, often get it wrong. So the Torah, in this week's Torah reading, understands that probability of the inadvertent sin of political leaders. And 4,000 years ago, our tradition creates a mechanism by which the leader can be absolved of their sin. They can bring a korban chatat, a sin offering. But notice what's not addressed within the Torah. You can't bring an offering and absolve yourself from a sin that is done bemazed, intentionally. Bishkaka, accidental, unintentional sins. There's a whole masechet of the Talmud that tries to figure out what they are, what are the occurrences that they happen, and what is the sacrifice that the leader needs to bring. And we can understand that human beings are human and will make mistakes, even the leaders amongst us. But the Torah does not provide a mechanism for the absolution of sins, of leadership sins done bemazed, intentional sins. Haughtiness, yes, we can understand. Evil becomes a different circumstance. Now, we can understand, perhaps in 2020 hindsight, how Vladimir Putin got to the point of perspective where he thought he could 
invade Ukraine without consequence. We can go back and we can look at Chechnya, at Georgia, Crimea, Syria, and we can see a successive patterns of aggressive actions that went unchallenged by the international world order. Or if they were challenged, they were challenged only with a slap on the wrist. And clearly, as others who are smarter than me have noticed, Putin has underestimated and miscalculated both the response of the Ukrainians themselves as well as the response of NATO and the world order. If Putin wanted to divide NATO, his actions in Ukraine have had an absolutely opposite effect and impact. And the use, therefore the escalation of this war by Putin and the Russian army to attack civilians takes him to a place beyond Bishkaga, to Mezid. We can understand, though we don't like it, but we can understand that in matters of war and armed conflict, innocent people will die. We euphemistically call this collateral damage, as if somehow or other that makes it easier for us to swallow the notion of innocents dying. But there's an expectation, even within armed conflict, that the powers will do their best, especially after we've maybe not learned the lessons of World War II or World War I. Right? But after, after the great wars, we created you know, all sorts of rules for war, an expectation that civilians will not be targeted, that you might have, there might be legitimate military targets, but civilians will not be targeted. Residential areas will not be targeted. Hospitals will not be targeted. Schools will not be targeted. Nuclear power plants will not be targeted. And yet we see that the Russians, through the use of dumb bombs as opposed to smart bombs, seem to be intentionally targeting these sites, intentionally targeting civilians. And every attempt thus far to create safe zones or escape routes for the civilians to get out have also been targeted by the Russians. It's come to a point where no one can reasonably assert that those actions are bishkaga, are accidental, and that the civilian, civilians that are being killed are being killed as collateral damage. That just doesn't fly anymore. I want to say one thing about this because I know that others in the, I want to say one thing about Israel in regard to this, because I know others are saying, well, you know, Israel you know, attacks sometimes hospitals and schools and so forth. The difference between the actions that Israel takes and the action that Russia is taking is what the um, Palestinians, what Hamas in particular and Hezbollah, um, where they place their weapons. If you place your weapons in schools and hospitals, unfortunately, those institutions become legitimate targets because you are then using civilian shields and you are um, you're using those civilian institutions as military bases. 
That's according to international law. It makes it very difficult for Israel to try to figure out how it can protect its citizens by destroying the enemy ammunitions when they happen to be hiding in those places. And Israel very often will use a smart bomb that doesn't do the job that it needs to do. And unfortunately, innocent people will die. But Israel will also do everything in its power to try to warn people even in advance to move out of that space. That is not what the Russians are doing. And it's certainly not what the Ukrainians are doing. The Ukrainians, to the best of the reporting that has been happening so far, are not using hospitals or schools or other civilian institutions as shields for their armaments. So what happens when a leader has no sense of accountability to anything other than themselves? That is what we call dictatorship and authoritarianism. The Torah assumes that the leaders will ultimately be responsible first and foremost to the people and secondly to God. When we encounter Amalek in today's Torah reading, Amalek is that kind of leader who has no sense of accountability. No sense of accountability. No sense of empathy or compassion for those innocents who might be caught within harm's way in a period of conflict. This is Shabbat Zachor, where we remember Amalek in order to blot out his name. And as I said in the introduction to the Haftarah, I think it's, it's not that we blot out the memory of Amalek, but we have to block out those who would act in the name of Amalek. The Torah in Deuteronomy in the Maftir Aliyah that we read today gives us the reason why Amalek behaves the way he did. Velo yira Elohim. Amalek did not fear God. And as a result of that, by not having a sense of holiness, by not understanding the innate divine quality of human beings being made in the image and likeness of God, Amalek attacked the defenseless. The reason we, are, we, we blot out Amalek's name is because of the evil of a leadership that attacks the defenseless, those lagging in the rear. The Eitz Chaim Chumash comments that this is uncommonly ruthless, lacking in the most elementary level of decency. Velo yare Elohim, not fearing God, means you don't have empathy for the powerless who are at your mercy. And so Amalek's legacy is that of the paradigm of evil within our tradition. That's why Haman, who we remember in the holiday of Purim is considered to be of the descendants of Amalek. Now, the Megillah reads as a fable. Whether or not Haman was actually 
a descendant of the Amalekites. Scholars have all sorts of different disagreements about that, but I don't think that's the point of the story or of the tradition. In the same way, why tradition will assign every ruthless, unempathetic leader who has tried to destroy ruthlessly the Jewish people over the millennia to be of Haman's descent of the Amalekites and so forth, because Amalek represents the idea of evil that must be blotted out. That is the legacy of the Torah and why we remember to blot out his name. And it seems that Vladimir Putin is on his way to a similar legacy for the blatant disregard of human life, of innocent human life, having caused a war of aggression and of conquest. And I think that too is one of the reasons why the Western world is responding in the way in which it is, and why Jews in particular, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, even though we have a very complicated history with Ukraine and with Ukrainians, it's why Jews in particular are supportive of the Ukrainian cause in this moment. Jonathan Sachs writes, there are no rules, there is no textbook for leadership. Every situation is different and each age brings its own challenges. But the Jewish approach to leadership is an unusual combination of realism and idealism. Realistic in its acknowledgement that leaders inevitably make mistakes. Idealistic in its constant subjugation of politics to ethics power to responsibility, pragmatism to the demands of conscience. What matters is not that leaders never get it wrong, Sachs writes, but that they are always exposed to the prophetic critique that they constantly study Torah to remind themselves of a transcendent standards and ultimate aims. The most important thing from a Torah perspective is that the leader is sufficiently honest to admit his mistakes. Hence the significance of the korban chatat, of the sin offering. That is a leadership of courage, the strength to take risk, the humility to admit when it fails. The other type of leadership, which we're witnessing now, is that of Amalek, which leads, unfortunately, to destruction and despair. We pray, we pray that, again, in our name, Amalek's name will be blotted out, that good will triumph over evil, and that peace will again come to our world. Amen.